GoMobile.io. It's Gone Mobile. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Gone Mobile Podcast. Uh, this episode is being recorded on September 28th, 2013. If this is your first time listening, we're a pretty new podcast that talks about all things mobile-related, with a particular focus on topics around the .NET space. So, you know, anything C-sharp-related, Xamarin, Windows Phone, what have you, um, that's kind of what we focus on. Uh, our hosts for today's episode are myself, Greg Shackles, as well as John Dick and James Clancy. Um, how are you guys doing today? Great. It's actually warm here up in Canada. Wow. Is that allowed up there? I, I wasn't aware of that. A c- couple times a year. <laughs> um, and I, I also wonder how long I can actually go before I have to stop referring to this as a new podcast. Maybe another episode or two. Let's milk it while we can, all right? Yeah, I think so. Um, anyway, uh, you know, back on topic. So uh, I'm pretty excited about this episode. Uh, we're going to be talking to Paul Betts about reactive programming and his, his project around that called Reactive UI. Uh, welcome to the show, Paul. Hi, uh, thanks for having me. Uh, it's awesome to have you here. Um, kind of before we get started, uh, do you want to just you know, quickly tell everyone a little bit about yourself and, and what you work on? Sure. Um, so I'm a, a hipster iOS developer these days at uh, GitHub. Um, and so I work on um, internal applications. Um, before that, I used to work on uh, GitHub for Windows. Um, so I uh, was, was one of the main developers on that for a long time. And um, now I'm taking the same way that we write um, GitHub for Windows, which is actually a pretty uh, structured in a, in a kind of unique way, um, and trying to apply that to mobile applications. So seeing uh, how MVVM and functional reactive programming fit with Xamarin, or fit with Android and iOS applications through Xamarin. Awesome. Uh, so you know, just to kind of kick things off. Um, can you kind of just talk about uh, talk a little about you know kind of what reactive programming is? Sure. So, um, so I mean, uh, reactive programming uh, is is kind of um, everyone who's done a mobile or a, a desktop application has written reactive programming, right? Like, um, you know, a, a compiler takes like inputs and then you run it and then throws out an output. Like, but a, a UI or like a mobile phone doesn't have an input. Like, it waits for something to happen and then it does something based in response. Right? So that's just reactive programming. Anything with an event is reactive programming. Um, so functional reactive programming is a little different. Um, so y- this is the thing that will that kind of blows people's minds. It's the easiest way to explain. I've tried to explain like reactive extensions and reactive uh, functional reactive programming uh, for a long time, and this is the shortest I can get it to. Um, it's like so um, if you know the contract of a list, like the from the functional perspective, like so it's a sequence, right? It's some stuff in order, and it, it ends or it doesn't, right? Like. Um, the sequence of digits of pi never ends, right? Uh, the sequence of, you know, just an array does end, right? So it's like some stuff in a particular order, right? It does not necessarily alphabetical order, just an order, right? So, and on that list, because of this abstraction, we can add all these methods like select and where and aggregate, or if you're into, um, if you do other languages, it's called like map or reduce or fold, um, so we've got all these functions we can apply to sequences, and that's really cool, and it lets us take really primitive sequences and turn them into interesting sequences, like sequences that are useful for our application, right? We're taking dumb arrays and then turning them into interesting arrays, right? By filtering them, by selecting them, by you know doing all this stuff. So that's really cool. Um, but then 
you look at um, an event, say like uh, key up, key up is a great example. So I have key up and I type some things and I type H-E-L-L-O. It's like, well, that was some stuff in a particular order, right? And then so the mind-blowing, like melt, brain-melting um, realization is that an event and a list are really the same thing in the sense that they both, because they're both some stuff in a particular order, one that has already happened and one that hasn't happened yet, we can apply all the same functions like select and where and aggregate and, and uh, you know, fold and map and whatever to events the same way we can apply them to sequences. And so just like we can take simple arrays or simple lists or simple sequences and put them together, we can also take events and put them together and put, make more interesting events. So whenever you, when you write like event-driven code, you're trying to make interesting events. Like I want to know when the user holds control and clicks this button, right? That's like a semantic event for your application. Um, but to do that, you have to like combine a bunch of events, and you do it in a very like sloppy, ad hoc way because events are really difficult to compose together. The whole point of functional reactive programming is to take events and turn them into things we can compose together. Um, and so, doing that, uh, there's this library that uh, called the Reactive Extensions, which takes all of the operators that you can do on lists. Um, so in, in .NET, it's link, um, and applies them to events too. So that's kind of like the, the overarching idea is that we're going to take events which happen all the time in mobile programming and turn them into something we can combine together. So you, you were talking a lot there about, um, you know, the applications of reactive programming kind of in the context of UI-related things. Um, are there any other applications that are, you know, really well-suited for reactive programming? And, and kind of in the same vein, are there any that are, you know, a really bad fit for reactive? Programs like a compiler are a really bad fit for reactive programming, right? Because they're fundamentally, you're taking an input, you're going to run some stuff on it, and you're going to get an output, right? There's no events, right? You're just doing, you, you have an input, and you're going to run through it, and you're going to finish, right? Um, but you find out that actually functional reactive programming applies to a whole bunch of things once you realize that one of the events you can watch is when a property on an object changes, right? So if you can say, like, whenever this field in a database changes, tell me about it, or this field, when this condition is true, tell me about it, then uh, you can apply this principle to anything, right? Um, being able to tell when an object changes is, is kind of universally applicable. Um, and then you find out the other thing that's really interesting about um, the reactive extensions is that you find out that events are hidden in a bunch of different syntaxes. So for example, a callback is an event that only happens once, right? A task is really an event that happens once because the task completes, right? That's an event. So Rx lets you unify all these different kinds of events that you didn't think about as events together and kind of treat them the same. So you can say, like, when either the timer fires or the network request comes back, do something, right? And that something could be either, like, cancel or, like, display a dialog box or it succeeded um, so we can continue further, right? But being able to, like handle both like the user click cancel or the network request completed in the same sentence, kind of like the same statement, is really useful. Um, and is, you can't be really, really done in uh, the kind of imperative programming model that most people are used to. Right. That makes a lot of sense. So 
Um, you know, I guess the next step of that is, as we mentioned before, you have your your project called Reactive UI that kind of takes those principles and and brings them, you know, across to a bunch of different platforms. Um, I guess just to start out with, can you give kind of the the elevator pitch of Reactive UI and what it is? Sure. So so Reactive UI is an MVVM framework. That's kind of like the the basic pitch, and it runs everywhere. It runs on every platform you can write C sharp in, except for I think like XNA, but like um, um, all of the desktop Windows uh, platforms uh, runs on all the Xamarin products, so iOS, Android, Android, and Cocoa AppKit. Um, and uh, I even have like a GTK pl- G- GTK Sharp port that's kind of like crappy, but it works. <laughs> um, so it really runs like if it really runs everywhere. Um, and so the idea of Reactive, so the Reactive extensions are a very domain agnostic uh, framework. So it does, it's like Link. It doesn't know anything about user interfaces. It doesn't know anything about um, Cocoa or WPF or anything like this. Um, so Reactive UI tries to bridge that kind of, like, gives you a bunch of um, utility methods and, and, and um, it gives you all the traditional MVVM classes, like a view model class or a command class, but it does it in a very functionally reactive way. For example, I can say um, there's an operator called WinAny. It's used really, used really, really commonly in Reactive UI. So it says like WinAny, and you give it like, like um, you know, view model dot name dot whatever, um, and it tells you whenever that property changes, right? And so based on the kinds of objects you're dotting through, it will kind of adjust itself to use it. So if you try to dot through, for example, if you try to dot through um, a Cocoa object. Uh, it will use a key value observing to try to watch that prep property to see if it changes. Um, or if you dot through something that implements I notify property changed, it will know to subscribe to that property. And so you turn that property change, whenever that property changes, you turn that into an event that I can watch. Or filter, say like, you know, like when first name changes dot where um, network request is not running, you know, do this thing. Right? So it's still... Um basically leaves you the UI side of things in terms of wiring it up to actually changing a label or, or doing something like that? A little bit. So, so Reactive UI also implements, re-implements uh, XAML bindings. So it, it re-implements them in a kind of different way. One of the advantages in, of re-implementing it myself is that now they're cross-platform. Right? So the, the same syntax you can use on Cocoa, you can use on Android. You can teach Reactive UI your framework, how to bind properties to view controls. So that was another reason that, that, is, uh, that I kind of wrote it. Um, so how does that uh, look compared to something like MVVM Cross? Are, are you familiar with that library at all? I'm somewhat familiar. Um, so I think that, uh, well, so actually the bindings, the, specifically the bindings framework, uh, Stuart kind of, uh, we talked about it, and, it, and he kind of stole a lot of the ideas from it. So it looks actually very similar to uh, MVVM Cross's bindings. Um, but it's really, it's really kind of the same idea. And the, one of the cool things about it was, is that they're typed, unlike XAML bindings, right? Like, so if you rename something in XAML, um, and then you'll never know that it failed until you run the program and then it crashes, right? Um, whereas, like, if you rename a, a, um, a UI control in, like, Interface uh, Builder and then build it and it doesn't exist anymore, you'll get a compile error, like the build will break, which is pretty cool. It sounds like this uh, bodes pretty well then for refactoring and, and using things like ReSharper and stuff in your code. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So then, um, 
so it's a little bit, you know, it has its similarities with MVVM cross then, or, but I'm kind of curious, how, how does it differ from, you know, just traditional MVVM frameworks in general? I mean, you mentioned the overlap with things like view models. Um, does it also share a lot of, you know, the commanding and things like that as well? It shares a lot of, so if you, uh, if you want to use reactive UI like a, like a, like a, in a very imperative way, it can, you can kind of get away with it. And so in that sense, um, it isn't overly different. Um, but you can write things in a very different way. Um, so one thing that Reactive UI has that, that doesn't exist in other frameworks is, um, I call them like output properties or like derived properties. Um, so in the sense that, like imagine like a color dialog, like a color picker, where you have like red, green, blue, and then you have a color, like you're displaying the color, right? Um, so in your view model, you might, you might have, um, you know, red, green, blue, and then color, right? Um, but that color property isn't really something that you should be setting. It's really a derivative of red, green, and blue, right? So in Reactive UI, in, in, in other frameworks, you might write like, you know, um, notify property change red, notify property change color, right? So like in the setter. And now you've like, you're getting into this like quagmire of like spaghetti code. As your program gets more complicated, you keep having to write these like, like, oh yeah, update this one too. Oh yeah, and the setter, like, oh, if, if this is true, then, then update this one too. Um, and it quickly gets really messy. Um, so in Reactive UI, you describe everything in the constructor. You're describing what should happen, right? It's kind of like you're like wiring everything up, um, and then you really don't have any of those like glue methods. So what you say is like, this dot when any red, green, or blue dot select, turn it into a color, and then there's an operator called to property, which will create a new property on your object. Okay, so it ends up being sort of an implicit property that's not, you know, hard to find in code, but it's something that you can refer to from the UI layers. Yeah, exactly. Well, you, you end up you end up having to write it as an explicit property. There's a little bit of glue, but the glue the glue is whenever you declare a property in Reactive UI, it's completely boilerplate. There's you never declare a property in a non like you never write custom code in a setter or a getter ever. It's always this boring boilerplate, and then the code that actually does stuff is in the constructor, where you describe how properties are related to each other. So I have a question with some of this stuff. About how much code share are you getting by doing this? Are you sharing a lot of code cross-platform, or what are your average code share percents? The first production application that I wrote that is cross-platform, um, I've recently finished, um, and so I think it ended up being uh, maybe 60%. Um, view, you know... Uh, Applications are very, uh, mobile applications are very view heavy, right? Um, and I don't really care about the percentage so much. I care that code that should be shared is shared, and code that shouldn't be shared uh, is separate, right? In the sense that, like, I don't care that I wrote a lot of code in an NS view to, like, do rendering or, like, on draw calls or, like, silly Apple stuff. Um, but I'm not, it's not supposed to be shared. And so, it ended up coming out really well that the code that I felt should be shared was shared. Um, and so, so in this application, it's kind of like a really straightforward, like uh, somebody sends you a push notification, you can browse through a list of things. It's kind of a, like this pretty straightforward master detail kind of application. Um, but it shares um, all the caching, all the image loading logic, um, all of the... Um, yeah, all of the all of the network calls were shared. All of the all of the modeling code was shared. Um, really, the only things that weren't shared were the view and some initialization code. So, like some of the like uh, 
Apple-specific startup stuff. Or like uh, recently in iOS 7, they added the um, like they'll update you on a timer, right? Like every once in a while, they'll wake you up and then like you can download some stuff. Um, so that isn't shared. But um, in general, I'm really happy with with the split and what isn't shared and what is. So I think it came out really well. I'm pretty excited about it actually. Were there any platforms that gave you, you know, a particular hard time or that were, you know, a lot harder to, to bring this framework to than others? React VUI uses a lot of reflection tricks. Um, and so that breaks linking a lot. So that, that was a little bit of a frustration. Um, it isn't too bad. Like you can, in your application, you can kind of trick it pretty easily. And uh, iOS is, uh, so iOS for a long time just did not get along with reactive extensions at all because of the generic stuff. Um, so, uh, but they did a lot of great work around fixing generics and, and uh, so that you don't get the JIT exception on device. Um, so that was really useful. So for a while, it just was not possible to run uh, reactive UI on iOS, but now it is. So that's very cool. iOS definitely is more challenging, I think, in my opinion. Just there's so many, a lot of the restrictions are like Apple decides to randomly send you SIG kill, which is not <laughs> friendly, but uh, that's what happens. It depends. Like certain things are harder than others. Like I'm like I'm right now. I'm implementing push notifications in Android, and that's kind of a mess, right? Because there's all these like separate classes that get woken up, and like uh, it's really decoupled. But at the same time, it means all your like the flow of your code, like the flow of what actually happens, is completely obscured because they're jumping through like eight different classes. I don't know. Some things are trickier than others. Gotcha. You know, typical engineering answer, but I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, so kind of. On a, on a more simple level, I'm curious, you know, so for, if I'm a new developer coming in and I'm, you know, I want to try out Reactive UI on one of my projects, kind of, what is the, the file new Reactive UI project experience like? So, uh, bad right now. Um, um, we have, I need to figure out a way to publish it. Uh, inside GitHub, we have this application called Starter Mobile, uh, which isn't an actual application. It's just like a thing that you run and it like, um, We'll create like a default template that uses both. It's kind of like the kitchen sink template, um, and then it'll like rename the application because it's named like Starter, and so it'll rename it to like My Cool App, you know, whatever. Um, I need to figure out a way to open source that. But the thing about Reactive UI is it's it's more buffet table and less omakase uh, in the sense that you can always like um, you don't have to buy into the entire thing to use it. Like you can try um, you can it works along with side with other MVVM frameworks. So you can actually use it with MVVM cross. You don't have to pick one or the other. Um, and try different pieces and then, you know, see what works and see what doesn't. And you can kind of like grow into it. You don't have to start from it from day one. So would you normally edit to a project, say, using NuGet? Or would you go download the, the project and compile it or take DLLs from somewhere? I definitely give, like, uh, I would use the releases. Um, so I use, I put out releases on GitHub every version um, and I also the the NuGet package also includes all the different platforms so um, even though NuGet isn't super Xamarin friendly you can crack open the package and grab the, the binaries out um, but the, re the releases version also has all the all of the reactive extensions the correct versions of it uh, that you need and like basically everything you need any plans to uh, bring it to the component store um, I do have plans to bring it to the component store um, they're kind of uh, still working on it. It's kind of a, a bigger framework, and so it's more uh, more difficult to come up with a. It's not just like one of these little components that you drop in, right? So, 
it's a little bit more involved. And it also has a dependency on a different Xamarin component, which is, I don't, I don't know if they handle that particularly well right now. Um, so the reactive extensions themselves are also a Xamarin component. So we'll see. No, dependencies are coming, just not there yet. Well, there you go. <laughs> so, you know, you mentioned that there's a lot of reflection going on. There's with, with any framework that like this, there's always a lot of magic and a lot of, you know, conventions and things going on behind the scenes. So I'm a little curious about, you know, some of the, the performance implications that you, you've noticed from, you know, running a framework like this on, you know, these mobile devices that while they're getting more powerful, you know, every month, you know, they're still a lot weaker than, you know, desktop machines or servers. Sure, sure. So I think that one, the biggest thing that it takes is, is, um, uh, is size. That's, that's the biggest hit right now. Um, and the linker helps with that if you can get the linker to work. Um, but size and startup are definitely a, a challenge right now. Um, in terms of speed, it actually, um, and the same, the people ask the same question about GitHub for Windows when, when we used it in a Windows application. Um, and the thing about application speed is the thing that takes a lot of time is layout and rendering, right? And so when you write applications in a very, in the functional reactive way, you effectively limit the amount of changes to as little as possible. Right, because you're describing exactly what changed and how they're related. You're also describing what should be updated in the UI in a very minimal way. So you end up having a faster application because you're, you're updating as little as possible in the user interface. Whereas a lot of times um, in imperative user interfaces, you end up having like this update the UI function that just like flat, like does everything. Um, but the result is that you end up flashing the UI way more, right? Um, so it ends up actually being faster, even though the actual calculation of what, uh, what to update might be a little bit more expensive in terms of like, you know, just like Link, it generates a lot of like small temporary objects. But um, I think in general, uh, that isn't, uh, it hasn't come up for me in, at least. Okay. And uh, does the framework do anything around trying to make sure that certain operations happen on, say, the UI thread or background thread and, you know, swapping back and forth? Or is that largely left up to the developer using the framework to make sure that that happens correctly? Yep. Yeah, it, it actually, um, it helps in a number of ways to, to, to kind of hide uh, marshalling things to the UI thread when, you, when you're supposed to. So um, the version of I command that comes with reactive UI um, kind of has um, background worker built into it. Like um, it will, uh, you can register an asynchronous operation to happen whenever the command is fired. And so when, when the async operation is happening in the background, uh, the command is disabled, right? If you want it to be. So that's, um, and then when it marshals the result back, it will send it back on the UI thread. So there's a lot of places where like, um, if you had to do it yourself, uh, the framework just knows to do it for you. So it kind of hides a little bit from you. There's still sometimes you have to do it observe on. Um, but luckily, you can avoid that usually. So um, kind of moving on from that a little bit, uh, I know something that, that you're typically big on in a lot of your frameworks is, is testing and you know, making things testable. Uh, what is the testing story around reactive and reactive UI like? So the testing story is one of the most, in my opinion, the, one of the most exciting things about reactive UI. Um, in the sense that um, testing all this asynchronous stuff is really difficult, um, especially when it comes to trying to like um, realistically mock these uh, network operations or like things in the background or like trying to simulate what happens if they're in an airport and the network sucks. Um, and so, reactive UI, everything that's 
an asynchronous operation doesn't get directly sent to like, you know, task or a background thread. It gets sent through this object called a scheduler. And so this is an Rx thing. Um, and so scheduler is this interface that kind of abstracts away being able to defer something, to run something in the background. And so when you make that an abstraction and send everything through it, it means you can replace it. And so if you run um, a unit test in the test scheduler, all of the, or in a unit test runner, it knows to replace like the UI thread, quote unquote, with just run it immediately, right? And you can also replace the background thread, the background scheduler, with one that runs it immediately as well, right? And so it means that you can have code that while running in the UI will be completely asynchronous and run in the background and run it back on the UI thread when it's appropriate. In the, in the test runner, it runs synchronously, right? So you get the same result every single time. Um, and even more so, um, Reactive Extensions has this concept called a, um, a test scheduler. And so if you control, um, if you control when things are scheduled, you can also kind of simulate that scheduling in the sense of like, if you have like this timeline of a timer that fires every 10 seconds, you could just say like, oh, oh it's supposed to fire 10, 20, 30. And so instead of actually doing it, you just write down that you're going to do it, right? And so it means effectively in the test runner, you have like kind of like TiVo for your tests. So you start doing stuff, you click, a, you like write a test that says like, all right, change these two properties, click a button. Fast forward to 10 seconds in, what's the current state of the application? And there's a method called like, you know, advanced by, and then you give it the number of milliseconds, right? Um, and then you say like, what's the current state of the application? All right, advanced by 30 seconds. What's the current state of the application? And so a lot of these things around like timeouts or like testing um, what happens, um, you know, like testing like the error dial or the error flashy should be displayed for like 10 seconds and then go away after something bad happens. That's super hard to test with normal uh, normal testing code. And so being able to test it in using test scheduler, we can just go forward and back through time and say like, what's the state of the application at this time? Makes just certain things that were just not testable before into something that's really easy to test. And it's really easy to mock network operations in a really interesting way too. So you can say like, wait 30 seconds, and then uh, throw an exception, right? Or just throw an exception immediately, it didn't work, right? Or wait 45 seconds and then return a result. And because time is simulated in the test scheduler, um, these tests, even though they say like wait 45 seconds, they don't take 45 seconds, they, they run instantly. And they run deterministically, they run the exact same way every single time, which is really cool, which is really exciting. Yeah, the deterministic part there is what really interests me a lot, I know when I'm you know, I've worked with, I haven't worked with Reactive UI yet, but I, I've worked with other MVVM frameworks. And when I'm, you know, trying, I try to write a lot of tests around a lot of asynchronous actions that happen via commands and things like that. Um, keeping the test deterministic, you know, and trying, even though your mocks are running things synchronously, you don't, you, don't, you can't always guarantee the order that things are happening in. So that, that gets really tricky to manage and, and keep the tests, you know, really testing things and also, you know, passing, you know, on different machines and whatnot. Yep, yep, definitely. So what inspired you to create a whole new framework rather than looking at some of the other ones? What were some of the things that came about to bring that to pass? So at the time, so I, I, I've been working on Reactive UI for a very long time. Um, not a very long time, but it's been a good three-ish three years, um, which in internet time is like, you know, a million years. Um, so at the time, there weren't too many options 
um, you know, Caliburn was not Caliburn Micro, Caliburn Original um, was kind of starting in its heyday, but it was it was very huge. It was kind of uh, and then MVVM Lite, I'm not sure even, even if it existed yet. Um, but I really wanted to not try to bolt something on that was kind of a game, like game changing in the way that you think about think about these frameworks. Like, so it's it really like like I wouldn't try to merge MVVM Cross and, and Reactive UI today because it would just they're two different paradigms. Like you can you can kind of think one way or you think the other way. Um, and so bolting one onto the other is a little gets a little dicey. Although it, in retrospect, certain things do work out really well. But but I wanted to start kind of like let's and it was an experiment because I didn't know if this would work at the time. The reactive extensions were very new and barely documented, and I like spent you know days banging my head against the wall trying to figure out how it worked. Um, and so I wanted to see what what a framework would look like that you completely bought into this this uh, reactive extensions and. It turned out really well. So. so if someone was, you know, a developer was looking at all these frameworks, they see MVVM Cross, they see, you know, Calibre and Micro, they see you know, Reactive UI. Um, like, what, what advice would you have? Um, I guess maybe you're probably a little biased on that subject, but, but what advice would you have, you know, when evaluating these? You know, are there any, are there any particular reasons that you think might, might sway you towards or away from Reactive UI versus some of the other ones? Um, I think that Reactive UI definitely has a learning curve. And um, especially if you want to get some, something done quickly and you have a larger team, um, picking something that's a little bit more straightforward is, is a good idea. Um, if you're willing to put the, a little bit of time into it, I think that you'll, especially as your program get bigger, um, so if you're writing a super small program, then, then the differences are not going to be, you're not going to get as much advantage out of it. But as your program gets bigger, like, Regardless of what framework you use, trying to manage complexity in user interfaces is a huge challenge, right? Um, so as your program gets more and more complicated, um, the advantage of using uh, like fun a functional style in, in user in programming is, will become more and more. If you're willing to uh, bend your brain a little bit, then I think Reactive UI is a good choice. Now, do you think for the developer who's just starting out, um, I know seeing Reactive UI, obviously it's it's based on Reactive Extensions and that whole paradigm. Do you think it's a, 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 thing, a big challenge for a new developer coming on to jump right into Reactive UI without having done much with Reactive Extensions themselves? I think that if you're trying to learn a new framework and Reactive UI at the same time, it's a little bit too much. Um, I think if you're, if you're like starting a new project but you already know your UI framework, decently well, then it'll be fine, right? Or if you're if you're really into functional programming, like you used F Sharp and Scala and like Haskell, and then you're jumping into a UI framework that you don't know, then it'll be fine. But if you're trying to learn both, like it's kind of like too much, I think, for a lot of people. And by there by a UI project, you, you're referring to, say, iOS or Android and not reactive UI, right? Yeah, like learning UI kit or like you're learning Android. Okay, but you don't see it being, you know, for someone completely new to reactive programming, you can you could jump right into reactive UI as your introduction to, you know, reactive extensions, you know, as opposed to having to go the other way around. I think so. Yeah. Because uh, you can always you can always kind of like write it the imperative way and then kind of realize it like, oh, I could write this way more clean if I did it this way and kind of you can kind of step your way in. So I know you mentioned that there's there's a bit of definitely a bit of a learning curve. Um, are there any kind of common mistakes that people make right away that you know you would 
you would kind of call out as, you know, look out for this or, you know, you know, try not to, to make this mistake? I think the mistake that most people make, many people make, um, is that they try to fall back on non-RX um, concurrency primitives. So they'll, they'll like start throwing in lock statements or like um, uh, thread.sleep or something like that. And you're kind of like, it's like in Link if you were to like, oh, I know this is an array, so I'm going to cast it to array and then start like fiddling with indexes and stuff. It's kind of like because you've like escaped out of the system, then now RX can't help you as much because you're kind of breaking its guarantees. Um, so a lot of people try that, and, they, and it's often that they don't need to, that, they, that there's, a, there's a better way to do what they're trying to do. But it's definitely a temptation. Like You're like, oh, I know how to do this if, if I was doing it the regular way, so I'll just try that. And it'll, and it'll appear, that's the tricky part about concurrency, right, is it'll appear to work, or like it'll, it's like, oh, it worked this one time, but then when you try to like do something else on top of it, um, then something bad happens, or it doesn't work right, or deadlocks, or something like that. So what all applications have you built using Reactive UI? I have built um, a lot of Windows applications. Um, GitHub for Windows is built using Reactive UI um, completely. Like everything, everything deferred. Uh, so that's Git operations, network operations, um, long file operations are all done using using uh, the Reactive extension. So our, our application was completely asynchronous um, even before async await, and it ran on XP because it was um, because it didn't require .NET four five. Um, I've written an application, the same application that's both an iOS and Android app, so it's the same project, and it builds both an Android and iOS application. And uh, those are the big ones. Those are like the kind of the production ones. I've also fiddled with all kinds of like sample applications or like demos or like you know, got it running in GTK and like you know uh, places like that. So, but but I think that the most the most solid ones right now are probably iOS and, and Windows, all the Windows frameworks. And Android is kind of like getting there. You mentioned async and await. How much did async and await change Reactive UI for you? It actually, the interesting thing about async await, so um, is that they kind of work really well together, like a task and the Reactive extensions. Because um, a lot of people don't know this, but you can await anything. You can await. So they, uh, like um, Frank Kruger has a lot of demos where he awaits a button, right? Um, and so in Reactive extensions, that's super easy to do because you can await an event. You can await iObservable. Right? And so what it does, it'll just wait until, uh, it'll take the last item in the sequence. Right? Um, and so uh, like in a sequence like an event, like a mouse click, is there's no last. Right? But it's easy to make one because so you just say like dot take one. Right? So now you've turned this infinite sequence of mouse clicks into a, you know, you're only taking the next one. Right? Um, so you can await UI events even, actually even easier, you can await arbitrary UI events really easily. Um, and so um, combining the two is actually really useful. So I have an example where I um, uh, write uh, code to do updates. And so it awaits, it awaits a network request, then it awaits uh, a UI dialog, right? Like popping up a dialog to see what happened. Um, and then it will, uh, and half is Rx and half is uh, task of T. So they work really well together, actually. I think that's actually the better, the best solution like a lot of, I'm actually giving a talk about this where like people are like RX or task. And I was like, well, you use both. Like they work both well together. Um, and it's really easy to take an, a, a task and turn it into an observable, like an RX 
event and take an Rx thing and turn it into a task. They're really like kind of toll-free bridged uh, to use the Apple parlance. So I'm trying to imagine, and, and I, I acknowledge that our, you know code is sometimes tough to talk about on an audio podcast, so it, you know, that might make it a little more difficult. But I'm trying to imagine kind of what the API looks like in my head when you're when you're defining a view model and you have your you know asynchronous operations. Uh, you know they might in typical MVVM frameworks they they would be exposed as commands or something like that. Um, what does that look like in Reactive UI? Like what are you exposing? You know either properties or events or commands like how, how does that work in reactive so in reactive ui you usually want to wire up asynchronous operations to commands um, because you usually want to take the result of the asynchronous operation and stuff into the ui right and you also usually want to uh, limit concurrency on that on that asynchronous operation so if i have like an operation if i have like kind of my boring like if i'm writing twitter say um, I'm going to write the load, load the tweets as a command, right? Because as soon as I get the tweets loaded, I'm going to sh shove it into a list, right? And I'm going to display that list in the UI, right? So putting it into the list, you have to do that on the UI thread or else you're, you're firing a change notification from a background thread and you'll blow up because you're on the wrong thread. Um, and so, and you also don't, you generally don't want to be loading, running the loader, you know, twice in the row in the background, right? You want to serialize it. Um, and so putting it into an, a command is actually really convenient. So that's usually what you end up doing. And you define the, the actual asynchronous, opera, asynchronous opera, operation in the constructor. And so you can call out methods. You can describe actually how properties are related. Like, so when I said, like, when any, you know, dot two property, I, don't, I can do not just, like, simple selects and wheres. I can wire that through an asynchronous operation. Right, so I can say like when the search box changes, dot select many, and then select it into a Google search, and then take the Google results, and then say like two property list box. Right, so I can say how properties related even through an asynchronous operation. Interesting, and that's that's happening in you're saying the the view model constructor. Yeah, so in the view model constructor, you kind of wire it all up. Now, of course, like in the, you wouldn't want to write all the code in the constructor, right? Like you would have functions to like you know do the actual look up or whatever, stuff like that. Um, but you end up, it ends up that in Reactive UI, almost all the interesting code is actually in the constructor. Interesting. So then what does the, the UI layer look like? So if you're, let's say, for example, you're, you're writing bindings for like an iOS application, you know, what does that look like from the, the iOS layer itself? Reactive UI, and, and I think in general, this is the case, is that I consider the view controller, like the Apple view controller, as part of the view layer because you can't test it. Because as soon as you create an outlet that creates a, like a UI button, now you're untestable, right? Because you need to put it into a real control. It has to have like, you know, the entire Apple UI framework has to be running. It's not just a regular class anymore, um, which is unfortunate. Like they got like 95% of the way there of like proper UI architecture that's testable. And they're like, let's put controls in the view <laughs> controller. Oh, we're so close. Yeah, they say it's MVC, but that's not really true. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate because they're like, they almost had it. Um, so we consider the view controllers to be part of the view. Like it's really, I, I treat it like the XAML code behind. And so the idea is that because your views are untestable, they're very difficult to test because they have all these, they bring all this baggage with them. I can't just run them in a, in a test runner and like in end unit or whatever. Um, we try to make the code inside that view as boring and as mechanical as possible. Right, 
So as little as possible, as mechanical as possible, as like obviously correct as possible. So in a view controller in, in Reactive UI, ideally, and this isn't always possible, but you can, you can try, ideally all you'll have is bind and one-way bind and bind command calls. So like all you're doing is in the constructor you'll have a bunch of commands to set up bindings, and that's it. And what about, say, on, on Android, where things are usually defined more so in XML than necessarily in, on the code side in, in an activity or a view class? Do you have any support for the XML as well? Not right now. So the Android support in, in Reactive UI isn't as good as iOS, partially because detecting... Um, so so in, in XAML, there's kind of a standard way to detect when a property changes, right? You can take the property and figuring out the dependency object or dependency property and then hook the dependency property, right? In iOS, you can use key value observing to say, like, whenever this property changes, tell me, right? And there's a, there's a, a bunch of, like, hard-coded special cases, but it, it kind of works. In Android, the event related to when that property change is just arbitrary. Like, it's like, um, you know, the field might be text and the event might be changed, right? Or the field might be, like, you know, uh, scroll position and the event might be did scroll, right? They're just, like, whatever the programmer made up at the time. And so that makes it really difficult to write kind of, like, a generic way to watch when a, a UI property changes, um, so that's been a lot of, like, and, and there's a bunch of, like, hard-coded, like, the really common ones, like, watching when a text box changes are already coded in, so we'll just recognize it. But but um, in, it ends up being not too different because you're, you just grab the, instead of, instead of using, the, like, the code behind, like uh, you would on iOS, like, they create fields for you, you just end up, like, pulling those fields, like, find, find view by ID and then binding to them. Because the binding, the binding framework isn't, in Reactive UI, isn't, you can just bind to anything, right? You can just bind, you can bind to a variable, right? Um, it doesn't require a lot of special magic. It ends up being similar, but, but Android is always kind of trickier. So if you have a, say you have your, your UI button and you want to bind to the, the touch-up inside event on that, do, does Reactive UI support just directly binding commands to an event, or do you have to do any other other you know magic to, to make that work yeah so if, if it's a dot net event you can specify it by name um, if it's a um, and this is actually very recently added if it's a um, an iOS like a UI control event you can bind it by the enum and you can also there's always more than one way to do something in reactive UI um, so you can also like hook the event yourself and then just point it towards um, invoke the command. So there's a special operator that says, like, invoke command whenever this event happens. So there's kind of, like, if it, if it doesn't have support for it, there's it's kind of, like, you don't really miss it. It's just, like, a convenience thing. You can kind of wire it up really quickly yourself. Cool. So, um, you know, we have a couple things to, to chat about, but is there anything that we missed on, you know, miscovering on Reactive UI itself that, that we should definitely call out or, or you know, let our listeners know? Um, so one thing that's really cool is that it just came out in a recent release um, that I that I pulled from the application that I wrote internally. Um, it's um, a UI um, table data source. Uh, so it's the source behind a, a table view um, that will take... So one of the classes in Reactive UI is a... a, a uh, it's called Reactive List. So it's a list that, that fires notifications when things change in the list. And so it will watch, um, you give it a list of view models, for example, 
um, and it will watch when that list changes and then then buffer it every, so it'll take like 250 milliseconds worth of changes and then animate all those in. So it'll actually do call the, call the methods in uh, UI kit to be able to like animate those items in and out. So all you do is manipulate the lists just like programmatically like add item, like remove, add, you know, insert. Um, and then it will actually follow along behind you, follow along behind you and add the items in the list and animate them in. Um, so that's really cool. Like it's kind of, like it took this thing that was normally everyone would implement themselves and kind of screwed up uh, because it's really tricky to implement and kind of make it generalized, which is really cool. Cool. So one of the other things that I, I definitely want to chat about, um, you know, anyone who kind of follows you online knows that you have a, a GitHub account kind of filled with all sorts of um, you know, interesting repositories. Uh, and one of which, one of them that seems pretty related to Reactive UI is Akabash. Uh, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure, sure. So, so Akabash is is something that uses the reactive extensions, and it actually has a dependency on your reactive UI. But you don't; it's not nearly as hard to learn. It's actually really straightforward. Um, and so, what it is is it's like it's a. I it originally envisioned it as a memcached for native applications. It's really just this cache that you can use to um, uh, save and load data. I use it for settings a lot. It's kind of it originally was only for caching, but I kind of use it for just like general data store. Um, and the cool thing is it's a portable library. So that means you can write, it means all of your settings and data storage and caching can be portable, which is a huge, like that was a huge part of making um, my application code way more shareable between platforms is that I had a caching layer that was cross-platform. And so it does a lot of Things that are really common in user interface uh, patterns, like so, like um, they, it has a method called like get and fetch latest. So it will load something from the cache if it's there, and it'll also at the same time try to get the latest version from like a network call. Like you decide how to how you tell it how to get the latest version, right? And so like whenever you open like mobile applications, you always want to display something, but then maybe refresh it later, right? Or like display what the user was looking at in a Twitter application, but then if new messages come in, you can display them, you can, you know, add them to the list, right? Um, and so a lot of these, like, or like, um, whenever you have, uh, like, gravatars, right, you want to load whatever you've got, it doesn't matter, and, um, but then load the latest version uh, just to refresh it, just to have it, right? Uh, so that the next time you display it, you display the new one. So I could see this being really good for something like loading uh, your Twitter avatars if you're making a Twitter application into your list. Is that something that this would be good for, like lazy loading the images and maybe getting the latest image uh, but showing something in the meantime that you have in the cache? Yep, exactly. Yeah, and it also do, it'll do um, debouncing. So, like, for example, if you, oh, if you, it's really easy in an application to make, like, 20 requests for the same image um, accidentally. Like, so, like, you have each tile requests an image, and it just happens that they're on the user's profile page. So they're all requesting the same image. And so it'll just re it'll recognize that the key is the same and then make it so that they're all waiting on the same network request. So it issues one network request instead of 20. And uh, what kind of caching, um, what types of things out of the box does it support caching? At, at the end of the day, like the raw interface is, is just bytes. Um, you're caching... Um, the, it's like a dictionary of string to byte array. Um, and on top of that, it builds caching for arbitrary objects with JSON. It builds uh, uh, image caching, uh, URL caching. So like download a, um, download a, uh, a something from the network and then save it, all kinds of stuff. And, and it's really actually pretty easy to bolt methods onto it. 
to like add. So I, I bolted encryption onto it. So when you when you try to save login credentials, then it will uh, encrypt those before it saves them on the disk, for example. With this caching, um, do you set a limit on how much data to cache? Or, I mean, especially with images, how does that work? Does it, are, um, are they time-stamped and older ones go away after a certain amount of time? Um, how does that work? So the limiting, uh, so you can set it um, by time to live. Um, the actual, it's not super shy about disk space, so it won't, it won't proactively delete stuff from the cache. Um, it'll just mark them as invalidated. But it does support, like, time to live. Um, and you can say, like, please... Please uh, consider this invalid after uh, one day. Great. And you mentioned before the dependency on Reactive UI. Um, is that a full Reactive UI dependency? Like you have to take in the entire framework just to use Akabash, or can you take just a small subset of that? It's just part of it. Um, it's just uh, uh, the core library, which is, is relatively small. Um, but you do pull in the Reactive extensions, which can be can be a little big. Do you have any sense of um, you know how much overhead that adds uh, to an app? It's always disk space overhead. It's not really like overhead in terms of like uh, application speed or anything. Um, but then again, like it, I'm sure it takes some some sort of mark hit to your startup time. But compared to like if you did nothing in startup, but right. But I guess that that's another reason to just use Reactive UI because you already have it, right? <laughs> yep. Exactly. Exactly. You, get a, you hook them in with the caching framework. I like it. Yeah. And one thing that's really cool about um, the latest version of Akavash um, is that it uses this library um, that I also wrote called Splat. And so Splat um, is a library that makes a lot of cross-platform things that aren't actually cross-platform into cross-platform things. So, like, for example, like color. Like, every UI framework defines its own color class, and they're completely incompatible. And so if you try to write like color manipulation things in a portable library, it you can't because every every um, UI framework has def decided to define the same four uh, floats in a different way. Um, and so it makes it so that everyone can use essentially system.drawing, basically. So it ports, it takes system.drawing and puts it onto platforms that don't have it. Um, but the reason that Akavash uses it is because it creates um, an abstraction for images. Uh, bitmaps, and so in Splat you can't do a lot, you can't do much with the image. But you, in the view model layer, you really like the vast majority case. You just want to load the image, right? Like load it from the network, load it from disk, uh, load it from a resource. And so Splat lets you load the image in the portable library, and then in your view you call this method called to native, and then it just returns whatever class you'd expect. Like it returns like an image source or like like an uh, an image on Android or Whatever, whatever is the standard UI um, kind of paradigm. And so that's super useful in Akabash, which means that you can write cross-platform image loading and saving and caching code, which is really cool. Which platforms do you support for, for Akabash and for Splat? All of them. Uh, WPF, uh, Windows Phone 8, WinRT, uh, Mac, iOS, Android, and Silverlight 5, because one guy contributed it. <laughs> Um, and I felt bad for him. I was like, "Man, you guys got you guys got a raw deal. Let's just let's just make that happen." <laughs> that that was very kind of you. <laughs> and you mentioned that you know, you're using portable library projects. Uh, is that do do all these frameworks that we've talked about so far? You know, are they all based on portable class libraries? Then they are split in such a way so that you can use portable class libraries. Um, right now, the Reactive Extensions uses the uh, four point five portable class library profile, 
um, profile, I think 78. I, I can't remember. They, they have arbitrary numbers. Yeah. All the platforms that support .NET 4.5. So it's Windows Phone 8, WinRT, and .NET 4.5 desktop. Right? And all the Xamarin, process, or all the Xamarin projects um, technically support .NET 4.5, but their portable library, uh, I've had some trouble with it. Um, it would get confused with like framework references. Like it would say like, like you don't have MS Corelib reference, like system.object is not a thing. And I was like, I'm pretty sure it's a thing. <laughs> um, but uh, I would not believe me. So even though right now they're set up to be PCLs, all the Xamarin ones are built as non-PCL objects or uh, libraries rather. So, but when that, when that, when those bugs are fixed, it will be all unified and everything will be wonderful and, and happy. <laughs> Well, hopefully that that comes sooner rather than later. I'm sure that's kind of annoying to maintain. It's not. Well, yes. I mean, for me, it's annoying. Um, when you're an application de developer, it's not terribly bad. So the trick is just create your CS projects in separate directories and then copy them both to the same directory. So, like, I'll have, like, my app underscore Android, right? And the CS project will be in the same folder as the my app underscore iOS, right? And then you... And then you, you, you have to add the th every file twice, but um, it ends up being not as frustrating. Uh, other, there are a bunch of other approaches, like trying to use li like file links, and then always like I get into trouble with it, like bad things happen to me. <laughs> um, it generally um, works pretty right. Cool. So, I mean, is there anything else that, that you wanted to talk about or call out that, that we haven't touched on yet? Um, sure. So if you're interested in learning more about Reactive UI, I'm actually trying this kind of experiment um, on Tuesday. If any of you are, are gamers out there, you might have seen like Twitch.tv or like uh, they also did it on the previous website, Justin.tv. So it's like live streaming, right? So like people are um, playing a video game and talking about it and uh, you can watch them play a video game, right? Um, and there's a, there's a chat room on the side that where people can kind of like talk with the person playing, right? So I'm kind of taking the same idea and turning it into live coding. So uh, Tuesday at 1 p.m., um, you can check my, check my uh, Twitter, and I'll keep talking about it a lot. I'm going to add a feature to Reactive UI, and anyone can, it's kind of office hours, too, so people can bring questions, and we'll have the code up on screen, so we'll just look it up and see, I'll explain how it works and stuff like this. Um, so I'm hoping it'll be, like, pretty interesting. It's kind of like this new way to... Like, you know, there's podcasts and there's blogs and there's Twitter and like, this is a, like a new idea. So I want to see if it will work or not. That's interesting. How, how long do you see it going that day? Or is it basically just until it's done? You just leave it open-ended? I think I put it as an hour and a half. So, but, but um, I'll be recording it. So it'll be on, I'll put it up on YouTube. Um, so if you miss it, you can see the canned version. So that's really cool. I mean, I'm, I can't guarantee that our, this episode will be, you know, posted and live by before that happens but uh. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine i'll probably keep i'll probably keep doing it i want to i want to do a couple of them before before i declare this idea working or dead so there's only one way to find out yep yep all right well um this is definitely an awesome conversation thanks so much paul for for being on the episode and to to james and and john my co-host here once again um and thanks to everyone for tuning in, to, and we'll see you next time on the next episode of Gone Mobile. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Paul. It was great. <laughs> <laughs>